I hope your hope this morning is Jesus. What a precious hope. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4 as we think of that hope we have in Jesus this morning. We want to think of what, what a privilege we have in Jesus this morning. We're going to consider Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, in which we will find two exhortations that we should admonish or hold to when we face times of trouble and persecution. As we look at the book of Hebrews, we've come to a transition point. The first part of the book has been talking about the superiority of the Son. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, over the prophets, chapter 1, verse 4 to chapter 2, verse 18, over the angels, interrupted with a warning, a warning about drifting away from God by neglect, Hebrews 2, 1 to 4. And then the superiority of the Son over Moses, chapter 1, 3, verses 1 to 6, the superiority of the Son over Joshua, Chapter 3, verse 7 to 4, 13, again interrupted with a warning about reaching a point of provocation in your life. Now we come to a section of Scripture which is going to talk about the superiority of the Son over Aaron, only this is not going to just be a brief section. This is going to reach all the way into chapters 9 and 10. And the three verses we have before us are transitional verses. Many, uh, it's amazing how many different outlines different students of the Bible can come up with when they're outlining the scriptures. But uh, these three verses are sometimes included with the previous text, sometimes with the coming text, which demonstrates the fact that they are transitional. Uh, they're, particularly, they're particularly meaningful as we come off of our study about the rest uh, and, and find these verses next in line because we find that the, the Jewish believers who were drifting back into Judaism and straying away from Christianity, uh, that they needed to understand that there was a Sabbath rest in the Christian faith, but it was not a day of rest. It was a plateau or a, a place of spiritual growth where they could trust the Lord and be stable. And, and we found as we read on that a part of that was being saved, a part of that was striving in the yoke with the whole Lord as he told them to do, come unto me and take on my yoke. And then we found out the word of God was especially important in all of that. And then we were warned that the Lord sees through all of us. There is nothing that we can hide from him. So we had better be completely clear and honest. That's going to come back again today. But the amazing thing is the next three verses. The next three verses. The amazing privilege that we have. Chapter 4, verse 14, the book of Hebrews. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, 
that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father in heaven, I pray for your hand upon me this morning, the filling of your spirit, as you bring through us through your spirit the meaning and significance, the great significance of these words to your people, to us here today. Lord, speak to us through your word, move in our lives and hearts through your spirit, convict us, convince us, Lord, direct us that we might understand what a privilege we have, a friend Jesus at the right hand of the Father. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Oh, amen. Two exhortations when we face times of trouble and persecution, and you don't have to look far for them. My wife always accuses me of taking somebody's words and always having to rearrange them or improve upon them or when I teach and, or say them a little bit differently. So I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to take it right out of the text. So look at your Bible. Chapter 4, verse 14. Here's the first one. Let us hold fast our profession. Let us hold fast our profession. That's the first exhortation. And the second one is found in verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. And the rest of the verses tell us why those exhortations are important to follow. First exhortation. When facing times of trouble and persecution, let us hold fast our professions. Say it with me. Let us hold fast our profession. It means there that we should grip it like our life depends upon it. I remember when I was a young boy, they had a playground in the elementary school where I attended. They had a monkey bar back there, and they had a swing back there, and they had, a, they had another thing, and I don't know what they call it, but it was kind of like a horizontal ladder. You know, you went up steps at either end, and it was like a ladder, and you took your hands and walked the ladder with your hands. You had to hold on. <laughs> you had to hold on with one hand while you reached and reached. I never did quite master that like I hoped I might someday. But you had to grasp that bar. You'd fall down. And that's the way we ought to grasp our profession in the Lord Jesus Christ. It should be something that is public. How can we grasp it? We can grasp it by not trying to be secret about it, by being willing to take a public stand about it. That gives us confidence in our profession. Uh, it's important that we examine ourselves first, though. Sometimes the way we use profession today, especially in this church, we'll say sometimes that we had uh, 30 professions on Memorial Day, recognizing the fact that they're not all confessions. They're not all genuine always. Sometimes they're just mouth professions. But the word here, though it's profession, it means, and it would mean this in King James era, it's, it's, it's like the word confession that we would think of. It's not just a verbal statement of faith. It is, is a confession of faith. This is one of those Greek words that, even if you don't know Greek, it's kind of interesting to look at it and to see how it comes over into the English language. It's homologia. Hamalagia. Hama, homo, means one, right? And laga, lagas means one word. So it speaks of a confession, a one word or one words that are words that are one with God. 
words that are one with the Scripture, a confession that God is right and what He says is right. And that's how a person gets saved. And so it should be public. Uh, If you're holding fast to your faith, you shouldn't be entertaining doubts. Now, you know, there, there may be things that come into our minds sometimes, make us question some things, but don't, don't dwell on those things. Take those things right to the Lord and deal with them. Go right to the Word and deal with them. We shouldn't harbor doubts and allow them to overwhelm. Some people are, are, are introspective. Other people are not so much so. They don't think that way. But if you're one of those people, that's especially important if you're one of those people that's very introspective. You need to publicly profess your faith. You need to not entertain doubt, not to dwell and meditate on doubt, but get your doubt dealt with immediately by going to the Lord, by going to the Word, by going to a friend in the faith. You ought not entertain any other philosophies. Beware trying to reconcile the Bible with other philosophies, considering other philosophies. Certain people need to consider that for the purpose of teaching and different reasons. But generally, we can be confident and are confident because the Word of God has confirmed it in our lives and the Spirit of God has testified in our lives that indeed it is true that Jesus Christ is the answer to all our issues. And you know that it says here, let us hold fast. That is indeed in the original language, just to show you that I didn't make it up, a present tense verb, which means that it's ongoing, continuous. Don't ever let your profession or your confession, don't let it drop, but keep it in the forefront of your Christian faith. Now, we don't do this just as an exercise to keep our faith, some psychological game we're playing. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm, I'm not talking about playing a psychological game with yourself. I'm talking about being true to the Word of God according to what it tells us. And there are three reasons why we should hold fast to our profession of faith. First of all, the first reason, we have a great high priest. Now, the high priest was a very important man in God's economy of the Old Testament. It was only through the high priest that you could approach God. He represented God, going into the Holy of Holies and coming out and speaking to the people. It was only through him that the people went to God and that he brought God to the people, for he would come out from the Holy of Holies and he would bring representations of God to the people. He had a special appearance. He wore a miter on his head that said holiness unto the Lord. He had on a breastplate which represented uh, the 12 tribes of Israel by the jewels that were on it, while at the same time representing God speaking to his people by the Urim and Thummim, which we think may have been two stones or something like that, that were inside the pocket of that breastplate, whereby he could query God and get answers and so forth. And so the, the priest, the great high priest was... Uh, he, had, he had a very important position between men and God. This, this, was, this was really uh, meaningful to the Old Testament Jew as he watched all the special events, as he watched the Day of Atonement. Only once a year, 
once a year did that high priest go into the Holy of Holies, there to take blood and hyssop and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. That was the covering of the chest or ark that was in the Holy of Holies. To portray the need to atone for sin by blood sacrifice on the lid, which kept the box which contained the Ten Commandments that, commanded, that demanded man's condemnation because of his sin, and the holy glory above, which represented God's holiness, the blood on the seat to keep God's wrath from breaking loose on those who were sinners. Once, every year, on the Day of Atonement, he would go in, not without trembling, because when he went in, he was going in before the glory of God, which dwelt between the wings of the seraphim. He was a type which is essentially a picture or portrayal of Christ. Now, the New Testament high priest had more or less transformed into much more than what he was to be in the Old Testament economy. There was no king at the time that Jesus walked this earth in Israel, of course, except he himself, who would eventually be king. And the high priest essentially was not only the religious leader, but he was very influential he was very powerful, and he was very political. And so as a Jew, and here, remember, in our environment here, we've got truly Christian-believing Jews. Another thing that's pulling them back is the priestly system and the influence and the dignity, at least it appeared, it appeared outwardly that way, the influence and dignity and power and hence pressure that they could put on these new believers because of their position. There was a real fear of them. And uh, no doubt, although I don't know of any recorded instance in particular, they received an evil eye and some dirty words when they left Judaism to go into the Christian faith. A lot of pressure, a lot of pressure by the high priest. But you know what? <laughs> We have a high priest who is a great high priest. What's the difference between a high priest and a great high priest? Jesus is the difference. Jesus is the great high priest. The Old Testament priest was an imperfect picture of the perfect priest that goes between God and man. If we look back a page in our Bibles, chapter 3, verse 1, we find that... Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. He is the apostle, capital A. An apostle, you remember, is one who is sent with a mission commissioned by the one who sent him. And Jesus was sent from heaven with a commission to reach the world and to die for the world. And those miracles that he performed were his credentials to indicate that he could speak in behalf of God and in the name of God, for indeed he was God. But he was the apostle of their profession and is of ours as well. He was a high priest, but he is not a corrupt political high priest. He is a new and eternal high priest who is holy, he is great in dignity of his person. 
and in the perfection of his character, said Harry Ironside in his commentary on Hebrews. He is the high priest. He is here Christ Jesus. And Jesus is his human name, which speaks of his humanity, and Christ is his, his divine name, which speaks of the Messiah, the Messiah who was to come and deliver Israel. So there's a picture here in chapter 3, verse 1, of the man who would become the Messiah and, and of Israel. And we're going to see that developed a little bit further as we go along here. He came perfectly to fulfill his office. A high priest must be fully in touch with men and fully in touch with God. His task is to bring the voice of God to man, to bring the very presence of God to man, to usher men into the very presence of God. The high priest at one and the same time must perfectly know man and God. Jesus, as a great high priest, Listen, he has taken his seat as man, with a capital M, upon the eternal throne. That's Ironside's commentary on this event. He says that he has taken his seat as man upon the eternal throne. Do you know how significant that is? God is spirit. And the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit existed throughout all eternity as spirit. And Jesus condescended and came down to this earth and walked in the midst of the filth, the disease, the striving, the hurt, the cheating, the wickedness on this earth. Holy, holy Jesus. But when he died, he was resurrected. And, you know, we think a lot about the, the uh, resurrection. But, you know, ascension of Christ was, was, was really, you ought to get all worked up about that. Because you know that after the ascension, that Jesus went up into heaven. And now today, for the first time when Jesus ascended then, back then, there is a man sitting on the throne with God at the right hand of the Father. Never before was it like that. He was spirit. But for your redemption and for your intercession, for your sin, he took on flesh. And when he was resurrected, he was resurrected in a glorified body, which is a picture of the kind of glorified body that we will have. I don't know exactly what all will be like, It'll, our bodies will be like Jesus, but it's a body that's fit to live in heaven forever. He took on that body, and he'll never shed it. He took on humanity for eternity, and he took humanity, pure, clean, sinless humanity, back to heaven. And now there is a man in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God that will make intercession for us. The Bible talks about him being, it doesn't say he's flesh and blood, it says he's flesh and bones. That's kind of an interesting statement. But he took on manhood for eternity. We have, we have a great high priest. 
Present tense, continuous, emphatic, first part of the sentence. It's ongoing, it's continual. In contrast to Aaron, the high priest. Psalm 121, behold, he shall never slumber nor sleep. The earthly high priest entered the Holy of Holies once per year for just a short time. Jesus occupies the Holy of Holies 24, 7, 360, forever. Quite a jump. Quite a great high priest. Quite a difference from the imperfect priests of the Old Testament. And as these Hebrews who were being pressured and looking at the grandeur of the high priest... I mean, we see all the wickedness which we are told about in the New Testament, but to the people back then who didn't have this revelation at that time, he was a holy, great man. But now we have the great high priest, the real, true high priest, of whom he was supposed to be a picture. First reason, we have a great high priest. That is why we should hold fast our profession, not just as a psychological exercise. Secondly, Second reason, our high priest is passed through the heavens to the very presence of God. I guess I preached a little ahead of myself here, didn't I? Uh, strictly speaking, the word therefore passed unto or into, it, it means literally passed through the heavens. He, we are confined to the terrestrial sphere of the earth. And then there's the atmosphere where the birds and animals are and on up it gets thinner and thinner until we have the celestial heavens. So we have the terrestrial heavens, the celestial heavens, and then the third heaven, which is where God is. It's way out beyond there where we can hardly imagine, let alone go. Except, by the way, I plan to go there someday. And that's where Jesus went. Through the first, through the second, and through the third till he got to the throne, till he got to the Father. And when he got to the Father, the Father accepted him, and he took his position on the throne with the Father at his right hand. And he's there today. A man in heaven with God who is spirit. That is an amazing, an amazing thing to comprehend and understand just try to get you i just try to get your mind around that i mean for all eternity it's hard i mean we we can't somehow we, if we, it's a little bit easier to understand eternity future than eternity past and some odd for me it is but for all eternity past he was spirit and now jesus is a man in heaven at the right hand of his father well it emphasizes his transcendence. The transcendence of God. The transcendence of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 10 says this. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens. That he might fill all things. When we say God is transcendent, we don't mean that he's part of transcendental meditation or anything like that. We just mean that he is so high up there that we would have absolutely no hope of knowing anything about him if he didn't reveal himself to us. We would have absolutely no hope of knowing about him if he didn't give us the intellect to be able to comprehend just a little bit of who he is and what he did. 
You could take away everything, the earth, everything. You, don't, you know, this is scientific here. He, you could take away space. How do you take away space? I thought space was nothing. Well, I'll tell you something. If you take away all the stars and all the planets and all the material things in the universe, what do you have left? Not space, because space is something that's between two physical objects. And when you take everything away, you got nothing. And God's still there. That's what we mean by transcendent. He is not dependent upon us. He's not dependent upon his creation. He is separate from us. And today, we have a man by the name of Jesus Christ that sits at the right hand of the Father, oh, way up there, way up there. Perfect tense. <laughs> that means that it happened in the past, and the impact of it goes on forever. It's settled. It's, you don't have to worry about it. It's not whether he's going to win the game or not. We're sitting here on the edge of our seats. My hope, kids saying, they say, my hope is Jesus. Jesus. Uh, his place of ministry is in the heavens at the right hand of the Father. Contrast to the earthly high priest. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. I want you to notice this next verse. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. Jesus speaking, talking to the seven churches, he says, to him that overcometh, the one who has faith in the church of the seven churches, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set, am, present tense, am set down with my Father in his throne. Jesus Christ is not on his throne today. He was not on his throne today during the book of Revelation. He is on his Father's throne. But at the end of the tribulation, when the campaign of Armageddon takes place, after that comes, kids, what? After the campaign of Armageddon? Yes. The revelation. That's Jesus coming down. And then he will sit on his throne, and his throne is in Jerusalem at the temple on the earth, not in heaven. Today he is at the right hand of his Father's throne. Why? What is... You know, this era in which we live, God's trying to teach us something. Every era, all the different, we call them dispensations or covenant periods, God's trying to teach us something specific. And during this era, he's trying to teach us and get through to us that we have in heaven, way up there, a man, the only man. And he sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. He is our Savior, and He is the King. And He is still in control of everything with His Father, holding the whole universe together, still doing all that. But He's at the right hand of the Father because He's making intercession for us. This is the era of grace. This is the, uh, uh, the, the church era of intercession, emphasis is intercession. And when He comes at the end of the tribulation, then the emphasis will be on His kingship. 
and then it will go into the eternal state and they'll all merge together. It'll be prophet, priest, and king. Second reason our high priest has passed through the heavens to the very presence of God. Third reason that we should hold fast our profession of faith is that our high priest is Jesus, the Son of God. That's what it says into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. These, these, uh, these terms used for Jesus aren't just words being thrown around. They all have real special significance. Now, we've got Jesus here and Son of God, and we turn back chapter 3, verse 1. We've got apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. He is Christ Jesus. He is Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is Jesus, which speaks of him being human. He is the Son of God, which speaks of him being divine, holy, of God himself. And we have Christ, which speaks of him being the Messiah to Israel, which is the God-man who came to be king of Israel and will come again to be king of Israel, but in the meantime died for our sins. Deity, humanity, Messiah in one person. Jesus Christ. And he's at the right hand of the Father today. First exhortation. Let us hold fast our profession. Not just as a mental spiritual exercise, but because there's good reason to do that. We have a great high priest. Our high priest has passed through the heavens to the very presence of God. And our high priest is Jesus, the Son of God. Second exhortation, when facing times and trouble and persecution, come boldly unto the throne of grace. There are five reasons for this exhortation. The first three are in consideration of who he is, and the second two are in consideration of what he will do for you. Looking at Hebrew 4.15, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That's the negative statement of the truth, now the positive, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The first reason we should come boldly into the throne of grace is because our high priest has been touched by the feelings of our infirmities. The word there, touched with the feelings, in the Greek is just one word, and here we have another, a similarity. That's why I bring the Greek up, because it reminds us of an English word that will help us to understand what this phrase means, touched with feeling, in our own terms. It is the Greek word, sympatheo. Sympatheo. What does that sound like? Sympatheo. Sympatheo. Sympathy. Sympathy. That's the breakdown of the word sympathy. Sympathy. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with sympathy for our infirmities. He suffers with us. He shares our feelings with us. He knows our, affirmity, our infirmities. Our infirmities are a state of weakness or limitations that we have. He knows him. He's been here. He's done that. I, 
I, I, as I have grown old, I guess I say, I guess I'm old. I'm sick enough, I guess everybody thinks I'm sick enough to be old. I found out that it's, uh, people really are hurting when they get old. <laughs> Some people are hurt when they get old and they're not even sick. Imagine that. Oh, I don't think we have a comprehension of what some people live with in their daily lives and in the, in, the, in the darkness and loneliness of the night when they hurt. When they hurt. Jesus knows. He knows. He feels it. He has sympathy for it. I remember hearing about a very wealthy person. I think it was one of the presidents. Uh, he had been spending years in Congress and he uh, got elected president and served two terms as president, and he was looking forward to his retirement and being an ordinary person again. And come to realize after he got done with all of his work that it had been maybe, I don't know, 20 years or more since he'd driven a car, since he'd gone into grocery store. That's what they mean when they talk about politicians being out of touch with the populace. Yeah, you say, why do they say things like that? It doesn't make any sense. Well, they, don't, they just don't know who, who, what's going on here. <laughs> they live up there in a, in a little bubble. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. He came down. He got out of the bubble. And he walked among us. A father came into his home in this country one day in the 30s, last century, to find his daughter in tears before the radio set. He asked her why. He found that the news bulletin that day had contained one sentence. Japanese tanks enter Canton today. Most people must have heard that with a, at most a faint feeling of regret. Statesmen may have heard it with a feeling of grim foreboding. But to most people, it did not make so very much difference. Why then was this daughter in tears? because she had been born in Canton. To her, Canton was home, a nurse, school, friends, a well-loved place. The difference was that she had been there. When you have been there, it makes all the difference. And there is no part of human experience of which God cannot say, I have been there. First reason we should, the first reason that we should come boldly before the throne of grace is that our high priest has been touched by the feelings of our infirmities. Second reason, our high priest has been tempted in every way we ourselves are tempted. Except his was even greater. You thought? He became tired, hungry, and thirsty, and experienced human limitations, felt pain, love, rejection, joy, sorrow, peace, and fear. He endured poverty and persecution and was forsaken by his friends when he needed them most. Even God the Father deserted him on the cross. Satan pursued him throughout his life and with subtle cunning attempted to entice him to sin. But through all that, he was without sin in all points there's a <laughs> there's a 
statement at the beginning of the Bible and at the end of the Bible that might help us understand what this all points is all about. And it's 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. These were pictured in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and he was tempted. The devil said, the devil said, command that these stones be made bread. Feed your flesh. And then he said to him, all the kingdoms of the world, he showed it to him, took him up on a high pinnacle, and the glory of them will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Lust of the eye. And then he said, cast thyself down, and his angels shall bear thee up, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Show them who you are. Don't pussyfoot around. Show them who you are. The pride of life. So also the temptation of Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, chapter 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did. That was the Adam. The second Adam was the one that was in the wilderness with the devil, and he was tempted on all three of the same points and resisted the temptation. Third reason. Despite having temptations in every point, as we have, he is without sin, yet without sin. Uh, I, I want you to understand the depth of that. The fact that Jesus was without sin necessarily means that he knew depths and tensions and assaults of temptation which we never know and never can know. So far from his battle being easier, it was immeasurably harder. Why? For this reason. We fall to temptation long before the tempter has put out the full power of his might. We are easily vanquished. We never know temptation at its fiercest and its most terrible because we fall long before that stage is reached. But Jesus was tempted as we are and far beyond what we are. For in his case, the tempter put everything he possessed into the assaults, and Jesus withstood. Think of it in terms of pain. There is a degree of pain which the human frame can stand. Then when the, that degree is reached, a person faints and loses consciousness. He has to be, he has reached his limit. There are agonies of pain he does not know because there came collapse. It is so with temptation. It is true to say that he was tempted in all things as we are, but it is also true to say that never was man tempted as he was and yet without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Listen to how the Bible... Make sure you get this point, okay? Make sure you get this point. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. 1 Peter 2.22. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Hebrews 9.28. He shall appear a second time without or apart from sin unto salvation. 1 John 3, 5, in him is no sin. Did you get the point? 
who knew no sin, who did no sin, who is without and apart from sin, and in him is no sin without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Now, these first three we've looked at, as I said a moment ago, are in consideration of who he is. He's, he's, he's a man who has felt our infirmities. He is a man who has been tempted in every way as we have, and yet he's been tempted without sin. But now consider what he will do for you. Fourth reason, God will grant us mercy that we may obtain mercy. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. Mercy is a show of kindness, a show of concern for someone who is in serious need. We should actually model our, our Lord in that way. As Christians, we should have a lot of mercy about us. A lot of kindness and concern for people who have serious needs. God will grant mercy when you come unto him on the throne of grace. Fifth reason, we will find grace to help when we need it. We will find grace to help in time of need. Grace in the context here is a concept of something that he gives you. And maybe it's the ability to go through whatever it is you face. Maybe it's relief from the depths of what you face. Maybe it's escape from what you face. We can look back through the history of the martyrs and the history of the church and find examples of all those. He giveth more grace. How's the song go? He giveth more grace, he giveth more grace, he giveth more grace. This is not a throne of judgment. There is no throne of judgment for the Christian. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. If you're here today and you're a believer, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but that is not a throne of condemnation. That is a throne of reward. And there may be embarrassment and there may be tears because you see you didn't do all for the Savior that you should have or wanted to do but there won't be condemnation. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you're going to stand before the great what throne. Where's my helpers? Hope, what throne are you going to stand before? After the, huh? Great white throne. And there you will be judged from the books according to your works. And believe me, not one of us But for the Christian, there is no condemnation. We come to a throne of grace. This throne is literally pictured uh, as, a, as, as a mercy seat in the temple. Well, before we go there, whenever a believer stumbles in his spiritual life, it is not because there is insufficient grace, but because he failed to appropriate the grace available to him. God is good. God is good. And he appropriates grace by our coming to the throne. 
We said the second exhortation when facing times of trouble is come boldly into the throne of grace. I'd like to look at that phrase now, come boldly unto the throne of grace. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Therefore, because of who he is, let us come, present tense, continually, forever, keep on drawing near to him. Keep drawing near to him. Same concept as hold fast. The first, the first exhortation had the idea of hold fast your profession. The second one has the idea of, uh, of uh, coming boldly, continually, never stopping. Boldly is an interesting word here. Uh, it doesn't convey all that the Greek word conveys, but it's a good word for this. Because in the Old Testament, when, you, when, the, when the high priest went in before, before the, uh, the Shekinah glory in the, in, the, in the Holy of Holies with the ark and everything, it was a fearful thing. It's, it's been said that they would put a rope or a chain around the ankle of the high priest so that something happened to him when he went in there, they could pull him out. If he got struck dead. I, from what I've read, they think that's just a, tr just a story. Uh, I, nobody's been able to actually document that as being truthful, but it makes a point that was truthful, and that is it was a scary thing to go into the presence of the glory of God, let alone the presence of the person of God. Trembling and shaking, but, but God, Jesus, is on that throne. And, and we can go boldly. That means we can go openly, plainly. Most ancient rulers were unapproachable by the common people. Some would not even allow their highest-ranking officials to come before them without permission. Queen Esther risked her life in approaching King Ahasuerus without invitation, even though she was his wife. Yet any penitent person, no matter how sinful and undeserving, may approach God's throne, God's throne at any time for forgiveness and salvation, confident that he will be received with mercy and grace. What a privilege. What a privilege. Do you comprehend that? Unto the throne of grace. Literally, it is a seat of grace. It's a reference to the mercy seat. The mercy seat is, is, a, is the earthly partial picture of the heavenly throne of grace. Because as I said a moment ago, you remember the mercy seat was between the glory of God and the law in the box which condemned us. And it was the blood that stopped the wrath of God from coming down upon us. And now Jesus the true mediator, not the blood of animals, and uh, the throne being the heavenly throne, not the earthly box covered with gold with a lid. He sits on that throne. It's the seat of grace. And the presence of the Christian's high priest on the heavenly throne of grace speaks of the work of atonement completed, not in token, but in fact. Under the Mosaic Covenant, Israelites were unable to go before God's throne. They obtained access through the high priest, who was only allowed into God's presence once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he entered with fear and trembling 
In contrast, Jewish believers are continually bidden to come into God's presence with boldness, confidence, frankness, and free and open speech to pour out their hearts at the throne of grace. You know, I commented on the word boldly a moment ago. Boldly, sometimes in our English, takes on the idea of assertive and maybe even headstrong. Uh, the idea is with confidence. But when you look back at the history of the word, it has the idea too, is that you can say anything. You can open up your life as deep and wide as you want to open it. And you don't have to worry about the man on the throne betraying you. You don't have to worry about him casting you off. You don't have to worry about him throwing you out because he didn't give you permission to come in. He's always there waiting, waiting, listening for anything. Remember our verse here? Verse 13, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. My wife often shares the story of how she was disciplined by her father one time, and he wanted her to tell him what she'd done wrong. <laughs> well, he knew. God knows. He doesn't need you to come up there and tell him all these things. He knows. But he wants to see a humble servant confess. He wants, he wants to be in with you. <laughs> he wants to be close to you. He wants to share everything with you. Everything. He knows everything about you. It is because we know our high priest to be sympathetic and victorious that we can draw near to him in resolute confidence. His throne is the seat of divine omnipotent power, and it is a source from which boundless grace is bestowed. We draw near to that throne to obtain mercy, for we are conscious of our sin. We draw near to receive grace, for we confess our weakness. I have a couple of different places that I rest in our house. Uh, depending on how I feel and where I want to be. A couple days ago, I was uh, resting on the floor in the family room and uh, listening to some hymns and looking through a window up above out to the sky as the sun was coming up. It was pretty well up. Skies were bright. It was very light outside. But some beautiful clouds. It was, it was beautiful above the trees that I could see. And... Uh, they started playing a song, and uh, I thought, what is that song? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the Lord in prayer. I tried to look up, take it to the Lord in prayer in my hymnal. It's not in there. He's smiling over here. My wife solved my dilemma. <laughs> she says, that's what a friend we have in Jesus. Yeah, turn to number 317. What a friend we have in Jesus. Now, this, is, this should grip you with a new sense of reality, conviction, and determination. That your friend Jesus 
The man is at the right hand of the Father right now waiting for you to come. Hold fast the profession of your faith. Come boldly to the throne of grace because Jesus is there. What a friend we have in Jesus. Our friend made out of flesh and bone, human, is in the heavenlies. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. That's the throne of grace. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything, everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? And imagine that that friend is in heaven without, on the right hand of the Father on his throne. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Come, Joel, and lead us. I want to really encourage you this morning to search your heart. You know, when a person is convicted to come forward and pray here at the altar, a lot of things go on in their mind. Oh, should I? I don't want to make a show of things. I don't. Some of you need to come down here and humble yourself before God and just pray and acknowledge openly that you are going to be faithful in approaching the throne of grace with your problems. The preacher can't solve everybody's problems. He can't even get my problem solved. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, may we come to the throne of grace boldly. For we have in heaven a man who is God, who is at the right hand of the Father. A man in heaven. And he's making intercession for us because he knows what we're all about. Oh Lord, help us to grow our faith at the throne of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.